0: Acts 7, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. But I will judge the nation they served, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time for the promise grew near, God granted. God had granted Abraham And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in the bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge?, This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who had appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring, me, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, The images that you made to worship and I will send you to exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob but it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in a house made by hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep.
1: Amen. It's heavy, right? Wow. There's a lot in there. There's a lot. I mean, gosh, sometimes when I I read this, it almost seems like, is is Stephen just kind of buying time? Is it like a filibuster? It's like, as long as I keep talking, maybe they won't... Like, why does he go through and recount the entire history of Israel for the Sanhedrin? He's speaking to experts on the history of Israel. And it could almost be patronizing, but I don't think he's trying to be patronizing. You might remember, and as we went through this, and some stories might have clicked that maybe you learned as a kid in Sunday school, oh yeah, the golden calf and the burning bush and all those things. But why does he get into all that right here? I think what we have in Acts 7 is it's a bit like an in-house discussion, a family discussion. It's a discussion going on between two groups of people who are very familiar with the subject matter of what's being talked about. And that's a little bit different from us. Our setting is much different. And so what I want to do in order to unpack this passage for us is to just take a few minutes to, to set the context, to make obvious for us what would have been obvious for them. And I would encourage you this over these next few minutes. Stay with me, because on first glance, you might go, okay, it's a story, what do we do with it? But I do think that the point that God is driving home in this passage is as important for us to understand as it was for the Sanhedrin. Remember those two charges I mentioned at the beginning before Jesse read. The Sanhedrin, they 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 were putting Stephen on trial because they believed that Jesus was against the temple, and he was against the law. He was against the law of Moses. For the sake of time, we're really just going to focus on that first one, the idea of what does Jesus have to do with the temple in Jerusalem? Because it's really the most prominent issue in Stephen's speech, and because throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the apostles are going to continue to wrestle with the second question. What does Jesus have to do with the law? How does the law relate to what Jesus has done? Especially in chapter 15, we'll see that. But for this morning, let's focus in on this idea. What does Jesus have to do with with the temple. The argument that's going on in Acts chapter 7 is between two groups of people who were very familiar with the temple. They both saw it as a good thing, as something from God, but they differed a lot on how the temple fit into God's mission, how it fit into God's purposes. The Sanhedrin, it seems, had had set up the temple as the ultimate, the pinnacle, the best. They couldn't get better than that. And so any threat on the temple, anything that even threatened to change the way that they viewed the temple needed to be opposed and struck down because that's the top of the mountain. Stephen, on the other hand, it seems as we go through this whole story, he's trying to point out to them, guys, the temple is good, but God's never been limited by the temple. He's never been confined to this building on top of a hill in Jerusalem. Did you notice all the different place names that Stephen mentions throughout his message. He talks about how God worked through Abraham in Mesopotamia, way up to the northeast, in Haran, how he worked through Joseph in Egypt, how then he worked through Moses in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, and at Mount Sinai. And even once the the Israelites came into the promised land, they didn't have the, the actual building temple for at least 400 years. God was still dwelling in that tabernacle, that tent, that tent of meeting that Moses constructed. Stephen's saying, God, God's never been limited by this temple. Don't put God in the box of this temple. But even more than just saying that God's not limited by it, what Stephen is trying to point out for them and make crystal clear is that even the temple itself, as good as it is, was always pointing towards something even better. Does that make sense? The temple was good, But it was always pointed to something better. It was never the pinnacle of God's plan. But it was an important step along the way. It was good, but it was a far cry from what we read about in Genesis of how God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. To help us understand how the temple fits into the overall purpose of God, there's a short video I actually want to show you right now. It's put together by a group of guys called The Bible Project up in Portland. They put together these great videos that either summarize individual books of the Bible or that trace individual themes throughout the entire Bible. And the video that I'm going to show you guys is the one that traces the theme of heaven and earth and how they are meant to overlap and what the temple has to do with that. So we're going to take a couple minutes and just turn your attention to the screens and then we'll we'll talk some more
2: which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results.
3: So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's
2: to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again.
1: Cool. Was that helpful? Gosh it's beautiful. I love, I love when they take that picture of Jesus and all of a sudden, boom, there's the tabernacle, boom, there's the, the lamb, that, that the temple was good, that it was a necessary step in the process, but it was always meant to point to something better. And Jesus is the better. He is the better temple. He is the better dwelling place of God. He is the better sacrifice. And that has huge implications, Huge implications. As a matter of fact, the rest of the New Testament could be summed up as the the, the disciples learning more about just how much Jesus has moved the story forward. Just how much Jesus has changed things. Because what we learn later on in the New Testament is that now that Jesus has ascended up to the right hand of God... The dwelling place of God is not even just a singular person like Jesus. It's not a physical building anymore, and it's not just a singular person. It's now a people. Paul makes it so clear in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians. He talks about we as followers of Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are now the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. As the video said, unlike the temple, which was stuck in one place, the work of Jesus has the ability to keep spreading and uniting more and more of heaven and earth. And he does that through us. He does that through us. Think about this. Right now, right now, this very moment, we, as the people of God, gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, this is where heaven and earth Overlap. Not because there's something special about this building or really any other building that Christians gather in, but because there's something special about us. Because God has put his spirit within us. He now dwells with us in a way that is more intimate and more transforming than any temple anywhere ever. Just stop for a second and allow yourself to be amazed by that. But this isn't even the best part of the story. The best part of the story is, as that video said, when heaven and earth are completely reunited in the new heaven and the new earth. And then we will dwell with God in a way that's even closer and even better than what we experience right now. The story of the Bible is always moving from good to better to best. You see that? The temple was good. Jesus is better. The Holy Spirit's presence in our lives right now is even better, but the best is yet to come. Amen? But right here in Acts chapter 7, they're still just wrestling with the very beginning stages of of understanding this. They're still wrestling, just starting to come to grips with the implications of what Jesus has done. They're living at the moment of transition from the old covenant given through Moses and the new covenant given through Jesus. And as we can all attest, change is hard. Transitions like this are just hard. And especially a change of this magnitude, it's that much harder. And what's even makes it even tougher is that up until this point in Acts 7, this new covenant community has sprung up right in Jerusalem, which is the center of the old covenant community. That's what makes this tension so palpable. It's it's kind of like you ever moved locally? Like like moved from one house to another, but within the same town. There's, there are some advantages to it because you can move in stages. You don't have to do it all in once. So you don't have to pack everything in the truck and then drive for three days or something. You can move in stages. But the disadvantage of that is that you reach this point where you're trying to live in both places at once. You've done that? And you, you find yourself always going back and forth because you can't remember what's at one place and what's at the other place. And at some point you just go, okay, we just got we just got to move out of this one and move into this one. That's what's going on in this first part of the book of Acts. The follower of Jesus are moving into the new covenant, but yet they're still within a society that is deeply rooted in the old covenant. And they're asking that question. What do we bring with us from the old into the new? And what do we not need anymore? What do we leave behind? And since the new covenant community is still in Jerusalem They are surrounded by a society that is so committed to that old covenant that they are violently opposed to the idea that Jesus is bringing the new covenant. And that's why there's so much tension in this. That's why there's so much going on. And Some of you can relate to this. What used to feel like home to them isn't home anymore. The temple, the setting, all of it that they have grown up with suddenly isn't a welcome place for them anymore. Some of you know what that's like. In, you, in your decision to follow Jesus, it created some very similar tension for you in your home with those closest to you. Some of you guys, you, you know this. It created weird tension in your workplace with family, with friends. Some of you may have even been disowned by family. Some of you, right here, may be, even be here in Simi Valley because you've fled from persecution that you faced in other places because of your testimony about Jesus. And let me just say this to you. That's not weird. That's not unexpected. Take comfort from the fact that this is the very thing that Jesus said would happen. It's the very thing that happened to him. He promised to be with us when it happens to us. And even better, he promised that one day we will share in his glory when he comes in his kingdom. That doesn't make the hurt hurt any less but it does make it worth it. Keep going. Dig deep into your relationship. If you have just experienced the loss of relationship because of your faith in Jesus Christ, dig deep into your relationship with Jesus Christ. Dig deep into your relationship with his people. Keep going. A couple things before we finish. Remember those two charges, that Jesus is against the law, that he's against the the temple. Stephen, in his whole long speech, the point of that he's answering is this. Jesus isn't against the law. He's not opposed to the temple because all of that stuff, the law, the temple, the sacrifices, all of it was pointing to him. He's what they were all about. But because the Sanhedrin has refused and rejected Jesus, what that shows is that they're really the ones who were opposed to the temple. They're really the ones who are opposed to the law because they've rejected the one that the law in the temple pointed to. He takes their charges and he turns them on their head and puts them back in their lap and says, no, this is actually you. You're the one who's opposed to this. He says, you received the law as if it was given by angels, but you didn't obey it because you refused to obey the one that they pointed to. Now, at this point, they're really mad, but they're not quite murderous yet. What Stephen sees next is what throws them over the edge. Look at what happens in verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. you could only see what I'm seeing right now, you would know that Jesus is the one we've always been hoping for. Jesus is the one that all those things, the temple, the law, all of it was always pointing to him. He really is the Messiah. He really has risen from the dead. He really is at the right hand of God, ruling over everything. Gosh, I just, I stop and I think, how sweet of our Heavenly Father to show this to Stephen right here right now God knows what's about to happen to Stephen and how comforting and com- confirming that must have been for Stephen to go you're not wrong you're not seeing this wrongly I know that all of them are against you but my opinion's the one that really counts and I've put my seal of approval on you Stephen But as God's placing his seal of approval on Stephen and allowing him to see this, this is also what seals his fate with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, remember, these are the very words that Jesus said to them when he was standing trial. Remember that? In Matthew 26, the high priest puts it to Jesus and says, Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, Yes, I am. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of God coming with the clouds of heaven. They hear this and they go, oh my gosh, we've heard this before. This is too much. And there's no more even ceremony or procedure or anything that looks like legal proceedings. It just says that the entire crowd surges as one and they drag Stephen outside the city and they begin to stone him to death. But just as the whole point of Stephen's message was that everything in the Old Testament, all the roots of the Old Testament, was pointing to its fulfillment in Jesus, in his last moments, the Holy Spirit empowers Stephen to point to Jesus in amazing ways too. Do you see the resemblance between what Stephen says and what Jesus said in his crucifixion? He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just as Jesus cried out to his father to receive his spirit on the cross. Except, look who Stephen asked to receive his spirit. That Jesus is in the position to receive him into glory. He even says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just as Jesus prayed that God would, not, that God would forgive those who were nailing him to the cross. Do you see what it said when he died? It said he fell asleep. We'll see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. This is one of those first times that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the death of his followers is rendered sleep. Temporary. That one day at the resurrection from the dead, we too will rise again. We will awaken from the sleep of death. Did you notice there was one new character we met right there at the end? Just as Stephen is finishing his role, it's like a new character walks in from stage right. Right? Verse 58, the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1, we, hear, we see this Saul approved of Stephen's execution. In verse 3 of chapter 8, it says that he then proceeded to ravage the church and go from house to house and drag the followers of Jesus away into prison. And that the church in Jerusalem at that point is scattered everywhere. Everyone except the apostles. We're going to hear a lot more from this guy, Stephen, throughout the rest of the book of Acts. We're not going to hear from the Sanhedrin for quite a while, though. We won't hear from the Sanhedrin. It's as though the story passes them by, and they don't come back in until later in Acts chapter 23, when, ironically, there's another trial going on. And it's this same Saul, who by that time is called Paul, who will be standing trial for his testimony for Jesus. That this new covenant has the ability to embrace and transform even the violent opponents to it. That's unreal. The gospel causes tension. It does. The tension that the Sanhedrin felt was that they were so fixated on the temple, which was good, that they rejected Jesus, who was better. And that's bad. To be so fixated on the good that you reject the better is bad. Gosh, have you ever faced that as you shared the gospel with someone? when you're laying out for them the glory of who Jesus is and they go, yeah, that's cool. I don't really feel compelled to do anything with it. Like, that got some good stuff going on in my life. And there's just that sense where you can't break through to help them see, don't just be content with the good when there's something so much better that you could have. This is one of the hardest things as we testify for Jesus to others. We can't do that. We can't make them see like what Stephen saw here. But if you're here this morning and you have believed in Jesus, you have placed your faith in him, that's not because you were the sharpest tool in the shed. That's not because you were smarter or cleverer or you just figured it out. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that when somebody believes the gospel, it's because the same God who at the very beginning said, let there be light, has shown the light of the glory of the gospel into our hearts. And if he can do that with us, he he will do that with others. He will. Remember our pattern. We have a mission to proclaim this Jesus. Jesus. But we can't make people see him. So we depend upon God. We depend upon him through his word, through prayer, through one another. And we trust that he will empower us to proclaim the gospel. And when we do, there will be results. There will. There will be growth that we can't take credit for. And there will be opposition that can't stop us. It can't stop us. We should not be surprised when the gospel is opposed as we present it, because Jesus said it would be this way. We should not be surprised because it also can't stop us. I said before that in chapter 8, we hear how the church scatters from Jerusalem from that point. But look at chapter 8, verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That in their efforts to stamp out the testimony of Jesus, they blew the dandelion, right? Poof! And it just goes from there. That's who we are, guys. That's who the Holy Spirit is making us into. A group of people who come growth or opposition, the word of God's going to go forward through us. We are that dandelion people where wherever we go, the word of God goes with us and when the word of God goes with us, it takes root and it springs up and a new covenant community is born in each place where this gospel goes. That's who we are. Don't back down. Don't be pigheaded. Be like Stephen. Passionately share the glory of Jesus that he is showing you and entrust that even the Holy Spirit is able to use violent opposition to accomplish his purpose through us. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, you know that this this is something that I feel like I know, and I believe, and I see it in your word, and I see it lived out through others, but I am skittish of this. I don't even want to have awkwardness when I talk about the gospel, let alone opposition. God, would you embolden me? Would you embolden us as your people to passionately, lovingly, considerately, adeptly communicate who you are to the people in our culture? And then would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, enlighten their minds to see you? Would you help us not to be surprised when we're opposed, but not to be stopped by it either? Lord Jesus, you told us to pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we want to see, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.